A few words about Father Middle, but also uh, first and foremost to welcome all of you here, the seminarians of the Mount, our guest seminarians, university students, priests, guest priests, and the guest mother of a priest as well, which is so wonderful to see because I think she best represents Our Lady in a certain sense, right? So we welcome you all here. Um, I just wanted to say a few words about the consecration and also about my relationship with Father Miller. I have a, a book here that you all know, True Devotion of St. Louis Marie de Montfort. Father Miller, you might recognize it because you gave it to me on August the 6th, 1987. And the inscript that was 28 years ago, I think, when we met uh, through the Missionary of Charity Sisters. And uh, there's an inscription here by Father Miller, Dear Andy, may Our Lady make you all hers. Pray for me, Father Fred Miller. So I appreciate certainly his influence in my life and the influence too of St. Louis Marie de Montfort. And uh, at that, that year, 1987, is when I first went through the 33-day preparation and then final consecration to Our Lady. It has meant a lot to me. And I just want to kind of emphasize the fact that a vocation to the priesthood is certainly not just a natural phenomenon. It is above all a supernatural one, and it is a one that involves uh, Our Lady, who is the mother uh, of the high priest, uh, Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons why I think it's so important that seminarians understand and uh, inculcate into their own life a real love for Our Lady. As I said to the seminarians in the rector's conference, it's not something optional. It's something essential to our lives as seminarians and eventually as priests. So I'm grateful to Father Miller for introducing me to the true devotion, and I hope that today will be an opportunity for him to continue to do so 28 years later. So thank you, Father Miller, for coming, and thank you all as well. Father Miller. Monsignor, you were in high school when I gave you that book, right? <laughs> At the Missionary of Charity um, Soup Kitchen in South Bronx, as I remember. Yeah, it was great. I have a distinct memory of that. Well, I'm happy to be here. And I want to tell you something just by way of introduction. Uh, I live with 31 college students, seminarians of sorts. And um, the other day I was doing talking in direction with one of them, and he said, Father, I met you, I don't know if you remember, but I met you three years ago at Mount St. Mary's. I said, oh. He said, yeah, I did my freshman year at the Mount, and I came to that thing you did on Saturday on true devotion, and I made the consecration, and then I decided that God wanted me to be a priest, and so I left the Mount. He misses it sorely, but he's going to be going to the major seminary in about a year. So. The um, true devotion has tremendous effects in the life of God's people. When I was a seminarian, I, I don't think I ever heard the name Louis de Montfort. It was just something that was, it was out there maybe, but I don't remember anyone ever talking about him. I don't remember, certainly never reading the true devotion to Mary. It just was something that was maybe an eclipse in the life of the church at that moment late 60s, early 70s. But then sometime in the 80s, I think, there's been, there was this kind of, um, this phenomenon happened that true devotion started spreading all over the place. And now all over the United States, there are priests and lay people, religious, who are promoting this consecration to, 
to Our Lady. And everybody who does it, I think, has his or her own story about the effects of the consecration to Our Lady. So what I want to say just by way of um, introduction, that this is, we're going to call this morning a retreat, and it is a retreat. You have busy schedules. I'm sure you have lots of papers to finish and things to do. But you put that time aside. You're giving this time to God, and you're giving this time to his mother. And this is, a begin, this is the beginning of a long retreat that's going to last for 31 more days until December the 8th, I think, when you make the consecration to, to Our Lady. So St. Louis de Montfort proposes 33 days of preparation before a major Marian feast when we make the consecration. Um, let me give, uh, warn you. The preparation is important, but it's not essential. So if you forget a couple of times to say the prayers that Louis de Montfort um, suggests for the 33 days, it really, November 5th was the day that the preparation started officially for December the 8th. Um, don't worry about it. I told the guy, I gave this talk the other night in our house, and I said that the preparation can be saying all those prayers that St. Louis de Montfort proposes, and if those of you who've done it already, you know every week they get longer and longer, right? <laughs> they sort of grow exponentially. So you start like with the litany of the Holy Spirit and the litany of Our Lady and the prayers, and then every week it, it sort of expands. That's not necessary to make the consecration. It's a good thing to do. I've known people over the years who said, oh, I forgot to do, say the prayers on day 21, and so I stopped. I mean, that's a disaster, right? And I think that's one of the ways the, uh, the devil gets into this and um, tries to derail people from actually making the consecration. So I said to the guys, if you, every day for these 33 days, make a visit to Mary, Visit her shrine in the chapel. And here at Mount St. Mary's, you have all sorts of shrines from Our Lady, right? You have the, the beautiful statue of Our Lady here in St. Burns Chapel, the side altar in the Immaculate Conception Chapel, the statues around campus, the shrine on top of the hill. Make an intentional visit to Mary every day and just stay with her a few minutes. And if you have any complaints, tell her about them. She's really the complaint department. You know, she's a good complaint department. And if you have anything you need help with, ask her for that help. In other words, cultivate an intimacy with her. Open your life to her every day. And that's certainly excellent preparation for the consecration. In a certain way, if you could do that every day, it may be even more fruitful than saying all those prayers that are recommended in the book, although I'm not discouraging you from doing that. Okay. The, the preparation is important, but don't be scrupulous about it. That's what, I'm, that's what I want to say. And try to read the true devotion. That's more important than saying all the prayers of preparation. Because St. Louis de Montfort, I'm going to talk about him in a minute. St. Louis de Montfort had a charism from the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you have any questions, don't wait till the end. You just interrupt me. St. Louis de Montfort had a charism of the Holy Spirit to lead people to intimacy with Mary. 
It's a mysterious charism. Many saints have had it. But the Montfort had it in a particularly powerful way. It's a grace that comes from the, what's a, what is a charism? What, what, do we mean, what do we mean when we use that word? Eric, what do you think? A gratuitous gift, gift a grace given to God for the sanctification of others. Wow. The, the Mount, <laughs> well, the Mount is a great seminary. A gratuitous gift, what's that mean, a gratuitous gift? Freely given by God. What does the, in Latin, well, I don't, you don't have to know it in Latin. Gratia gratis date, a gift freely given to an individual, not to everybody, because there are sanctifying gifts that we all receive. What are those sanctifying gifts? That the whole, everybody who's in the church receives those sanctifying gifts from the Holy Spirit. What are they, Eric? Eric, I'm calling you. Uh, excuse me? Like baptism. I, well, baptism, but what are the gifts that, I, that baptism leaves in me? The, the Holy Spirit deposits gifts in me for my salvation. Brother, Father? Faith, hope, charity, prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance. Wisdom, knowledge. Okay, thank you. That's Father's an alum of Mount St. Mary's, too. The, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that everybody receives for sanctification are, well, first and foremost, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then the, what we need to enter into a relationship with God. The gift of faith in our heads, in our intellects, the gift of hope and charity in our hearts, and the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit to perfect those theological virtues and the other moral virtues that support them. So those are for everybody. When we're baptized, we receive all of that. Charisms are gifts freely given, not to everybody, but to individuals, for the building up of the body of Christ. So St. Louis de Montfort received a special charism, special grace, to help other people have, interestingly, his very deep intimacy and love of the Blessed Virgin. And that's what he wants to do through this consecration. He wants to share his charism of true devotion to Mary with you. Some theologians call the charismatic gifts the edifying gifts, the gifts that build up the church so that the sanctifying gifts build up the individual and in that sense build up the church, but the charismatic gifts are edifying. They're, they're, they're building up this body of Christ, the structure of the body of Christ. What else would, what would be another kind of charismatic gift that God might give to us? Preaching. Preaching. Um, oh, preaching everybody has to do who's ordained, but there can be special gifts of preaching, charisms of preaching, that God gives to individuals. So St. Paul lists, I think, three preaching gifts. The gift of faith, in other words, not only believing, but being able through preaching to communicate that faith to others, to be sort of a, a conduit of faith for others. So some priest can preach, somebody heard, would hear him, and they don't have faith at all, and all of a sudden they receive the gift of docility to God, reception of God's word. Paul talks about the, the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge. In other words, being able to apply the word of God to people's lives in such a way that they change. I think the Montfort had all those gifts as well. Let me just a little parenthesis here. Many of you are preparing, hoping to prepare to be priests. It's worthwhile to ask God 
to open yourself and to ask God to receive the gifts, the charisms that he wants to give you for the building up of the church. And one of the charisms that you can ask for is the charism of promoting true devotion to Mary. Anybody have any questions before we go further into, into this? Anybody know anything about St. Louis de Montfort? You know anything about him? When was he ordained? Around, approximately. He was ordained in the year 1700. He was ordained in Paris. And he only lived for 17 years as a priest. You know anything about him? He's a wonderful model for the priesthood. Didn't he have a temper? Um, <laughs> 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 yeah, he had a temper. He liked to fight. Yeah. How do you know he, what how do you know that he had a temper? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's good. It's good that you're reading the book. Um, the, the Monfort was um, just a, two years ago, Father Ken and I, during Holy Week, we had the opportunity to make a pilgrimage to the, all the places of St. Louis de Monfort. He was born in a little town of, called Monfort, and he had, came from a good family, good Christian family, and he felt called to the priesthood as a young man. He had, studied, he had been to college. He went to college, a college run by among the first of the Jesuits. So he received a strong philosophical education. He was very devout. And he had a mind of his own. Let's, rather than saying he had a temper, let's say he had a mind of his own. Okay? That's a nicer way to say it about a saint. Um, that's a, <laughs> I've defended many seminarians using that expression. <laughs> oh, he has a mind of his own, which is a good thing, right? It's good to, to know where you are. Well, anyway, um, when he went to the seminary, his parents bought him a new suit of clothes, which was not, you know, people didn't have a lot of money the way they do today. Uh, they didn't spend a lot of money on clothes. clothes. New clothes was something maybe that happened three times, three or four times in a lifetime. So they gave him a very fancy suit. He was all dressed up to go to Paris. And he said goodbye to his mom and his dad and his siblings. And he crossed the bridge. And when he couldn't be seen by them anymore, I'm sure they were weeping. Their boy was going to going on a journey to become a priest. I wouldn't see him probably for six years. And when he crossed the bridge, he met a beggar. And he asked the beggar for a favor. He said, will you change clothes with me? So he took off his new clothes and he put on the rags of the beggar. And he walked to Paris and presented himself to the rector of the seminary of Saint-Sulpice. Now, Monsignor Baker, what would you do if somebody came dressed up as a homeless person? <laughs> right, get, in, get some new clothes for him. So I, I, so I suppose when they saw him, they said, what are we in for? Who is this? Um, he wanted to be, he made a commitment at that point to be poor with the poor. He wanted to live not only simply, but he wanted to live as a poor person. And in those days, the priests were aligned, many of the bishops were, and many of the priests were aligned with the noble class. One of the reasons, one of the provocative truths that spurred on the French Revolution down the road. He didn't want to be part of that. He wanted to be not only simple, but he wanted to be poor. So he went to the seminary, 
and he had he felt drawn to Our Lady because of her relationship with Christ. He understood this is the foundation of the true devotion. De Montfort understood that Mary is truly the mother of God, that she gave birth to a divine person, that the baby that she gave birth to was not just a man who later God came down into him, that he was, he is God made flesh. So what happens at the moment of the incarnation? Three things happen at the same time. And this happened in the womb of Mary. First of all, she provided what every mother provides when she conceives a child. The child is born of the Virgin Mary. Mary gives everything to this child that our mothers gave to us. There's a miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the conception takes place without the human seed, without the seed of man. And the Holy Spirit creates the human soul. So there's the production of the matter, the production of the human soul by the Holy Spirit. And at that instant, the second person of the Blessed Trinity assumes that body and soul so that it becomes his. Theologians say the man, Jesus Christ, is deified. So in other words, at that moment, Mary conceives God. She conceives the second person of the Blessed Trinity in her womb. He's not just, she doesn't, just doesn't conceive the human person. There is no human person. The person is the divine person of the word. So at that moment, imagine that. We can't imagine that, I don't think. God, who gives life to us at every instant, God gives life to Mary like he gives life to us at every instant. All of a sudden, God humbles himself and begins to draw human life from this woman. The Eastern Fathers say that at that moment, she who was already holy became holy to an extent that we can't even understand. When she had that union, the conception of the divine person of the word. That's why, that's the, that was the exact point upon which de Montfort was fixated and fascinated. That God humbled himself and made himself freely dependent upon a woman for human life. I just saw recently a beautiful artistic rendering of the Annunciation. I forget the author, I never heard of the, uh, the painter. But anyway, the angel is talking to Mary. Mary is standing up and the angel is kneeling down in front of her because she's holier than the angels. The angel reverences her and the light in the painting is coming from Mary. The angel is seeing actually in the light of Christ that's in, within her. I wish I had a copy of it. it was very, to me, it was very striking. St. Thomas makes that point. He says he has a commentary on the Hail Mary. And he says that usually, not usually, always, when an angel presents himself in the Old Testament, the person who receives the message from the angel, the visit of the angel, adores the God through the angel. But it appears in the Annunciation account that the angel is honoring Mary. Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among all women. 
the angel is reverencing the sanctity of the of the mother of God. So if the Monfort, if that's the, the, the luminous center of the Monfort's thought, the divine motherhood, Mary is the mother of a divine person, then she has a very special relationship with that divine person and has the ability to intercede for us with him and to unite us to him. So sometimes when people start reading true devotion, they say, what, what's this all about? This is a little bit too um, Mariocentric. It's not Christocentric enough, and some people turn away from it. Who was somebody who did that initially? Started reading the book and then said, no, this is too much. I, don't, I, I can't get into this. St. John Paul II. He read the book and he said, oh, this, I don't, this is too much of a fix. It's too concentrated on Mary. And then he read it again and again. I forget how many times he read it. And then he realized this isn't really about Mary. This is about Christ. This is about Mary's relationship to Christ and Mary's ability to help us to enter into that relationship with him. So de Montfort in the seminary, all those six years I think he spent at Saint-Sulpice. Saint-Sulpice, by the way, was a reform seminary after the Council of Trent. And it was set up in order to form priests who would be simple living priests, devout priests. And de Montfort had two jobs when he was in the seminary. Not house jobs, jobs just to make a little money for himself. He was on a work-study program. Um, in those days, when somebody died, they buried them the next day. But the family didn't always stay up all night with the corpse. So they hired people to come and stay and pray with the dead person. So de Montfort did that whenever he could. Had the, made a few um, francs from that. He watched with the dead. And that, I think that kind of sobers you up pretty quickly. Yeah? Gives you an idea of the true meaning of life, the, f the fragility of life, the shortness of life to be ready at any moment to be called by God. So he did that, and he also um, worked in the library. And in those days, they were not collection, there were no collections of the writings of the fathers of the church, the way we have today. And so de Montfort went through all the books that he could find in the library to see what the fathers of the ancient church, East and West, had to say about Mary and her relationship to, to Christ. And he made, a, he made um, volumes, he collected volumes in his own writing, handwriting, of the sayings of the fathers on Mary. So when you're reading St. Louis de Montfort's True Devotion, you're in contact with the fathers of the Eastern and Western Church, who are the primary interpreters of the Catholic tradition. So the True Devotion is really a theological text as well as a spiritual text. St. Louis gets ordained. If you ever go to the church of Saint-Sulpice in Paris, he was ordained in that church, and he celebrated his first mass on the Marian altar, which is behind the high altar. There's a statue of him there and a plaque commemorating his ordination and his first mass. And then he began his apostolic ministry as a priest. First thing he did was he lived in a, in a home for 
poor people, a poor house, which also was a hospital. He lived with them, he ministered to them, he heard their confessions, he prepared them to see God, and um, he, was, he wore such a ragged cassock that the people in the poorhouse took up a collection to buy him a new cassock. So he, the commitment to poverty that began on day one as he left home continued into his priesthood. Then he began to, um, he began to preach. In those days, the diocesan structure the way we know them today was not so rigid so that somebody could be a priest. Everybody was ordained for a diocese, but then they could go, come and go into other dioceses more freely than today. So de Montfort became a parish mission preacher because he had a gift at that. And he would go to a parish, now today this wouldn't work, but he would go to a parish and he would stay for a month. And he would try to get other priests to go with him. He had a little band of friends and they would go and they would stay a month in a parish and they would preach and they would visit everybody in the parish. And that's where maybe you got this you know, idea that he had a bad temper. Because he would go into the bars and he would tell the men to come to the parish mission. And if there was a house of ill repute in the, in the uh, parish, he would go into the lobby and start praying the rosary in a very loud voice and encourage everybody who was there to come to the mission. So he's very much in the mind of Pope Francis. He went out to the peripheries. When he came to a parish to preach, he went to everybody. He went to the bars where the men hung, were hanging out, and he went to the houses of prostitution if there was such a, a thing in town. And he called people to conversion. And sometimes he had fights. And that's why the, I think he may have a reputation of having a hot temper. So, does anybody know, there was the church in the time of Louis de Montfort was suffering from a heretical sense. Does anybody know what that is? Jansenism. Jansenism. What's that? It's not much of a problem anymore, I don't think, but it was a problem. <laughs> we might be able to use a little Jansenism today. <laughs> a little dosa. <laughs> What is Jansenism? What? Yeah. It's the practice of not receiving Holy Communion very often because you don't see yourself as ever worthy. That was the practice of, um, it, that was a, a pastoral um, a consequence of Jansenism, that people were afraid to receive Holy Communion very often. Maybe they received a couple of times a year. Very devout people received maybe once or twice a week. That was one of the complaints of, of the little flower, Therese. She wanted to receive communion every day, but she couldn't. The superior forbade it because it wasn't common in the church. Maybe she received communion twice a week, and she was very bold. She said, God doesn't come down from heaven to sit in a golden dish. He comes down from heaven in the Eucharist to feed us. Right? And um, so Jansenism, that, that infrequent communion, uh, and the idea that you had to merit communion, in other words, you had to live for a long time without any serious sin, and even venial sin, in order to receive the reward of the Eucharist. So rather than seeing the Eucharist as a remedy for sin, as the food of charity, it was seen as a reward for, for living a sinless life. So from a theological point of view, what do you think Jansenism stressed? Penance. Penance, for sure but it stressed the justice of God over the mercy of God. And it stressed the transcendence of God over 
the imminence of God. So there was not much about the incarnation. I mean, obviously, there was faith in the incarnation. But in that setting, Mary was hardly ever mentioned. It was about the, the, the transcendence of God, the majesty of God, and the um, God's right to punish everyone for sin. So again, let me come back to St. Therese. When Therese was in the, in the monastery at the end of the, at the 19th century, um, she experienced the other the nuns were making an act of oblation to divine justice. So they would say to God, God, there are lots of people out there who are sinning, who are um, violating your law, who aren't even believing in you anymore. They deserve to be punished in hell. Take that punishment and put it on me. Punish me for them. And Therese heard that and she said, God's not like that. She said, the one who suffers most when somebody turns away from God is God in Christ. So she said, I'm not going to offer myself as a victim to divine justice. I'm going to offer myself as a victim to divine mercy because she said to God, God, well, there are lots of people who won't let you love them. So love me for them so that I can draw them into your love. That's beautiful. And the Montfort was dealing with that kind of divine justice and severity of God and not much, not much talk about the humanity of Christ. And you know what happened? Seven bishops said, don't bother coming back to my diocese anymore. We don't want this kind of talk. Because he was going right at the heart of Jansenism. There was another heresy in France at that time, too, at the time of Louis de Montfort. Do anybody know what that might be? It's not so, it wasn't so obvious, but it was a problem. It's called Gallicanism. In other words, the, bishops, the bishop thought that he was supreme in his own diocese, that the ecumenical council would be above the pope, that in an ecumenical council the pope would be one member among other um, bishops, one bishop among other bishops. But de Montfort knew, I mean, he had a distinct, a, a charismatic sense of orthodoxy. And he knew that that was wrong. And so what did de Montfort do? When he went seven bishops, when the seventh bishop kicked him out of the diocese and said, don't come back here anymore, de Montfort said, I'm going to go see the pope. He knew that the pope was the head of the church. He wasn't a Gallicanist at all. And by the way, True devotion to Mary keeps you rooted in the faith. That's one of the effects of true devotion to Mary. Louis de Montfort, because of his love of Mary, had a nose to sense what was Catholic and what was not. So he got up, he put his boots on, he walked to Rome, and somehow he got in to see the Pope. I don't know how that happened. I never could find that. So if you do some research on St. Louis de Montfort, you find out how he got in to see the Pope, you let me know. He, there was some connection. There was somebody who he knew who got him in to see one of the Clements. And the Pope said to him, tell me what you preach. The Pope understood the Jansenist heresy in France and the Gallican heresy in France. And he, Louis de Montfort laid out everything that he preached. And the Pope said, I want you to go back to France and continue preaching what you're preaching 
as my apostolic missionary. In other words, you go back and you, and you preach. He gave him a document. So wherever he preached, he preached with the authority of the Holy Father. The Montfort went back and doors started opening to him. Nobody knew that. He never told anybody he had that document until after he died it was discovered. He didn't go rubbing the bishop's nose in it. Look what I got. He just, he knew in his own mind that he was doing what was right. He preached and he began to have tremendous success. And more and more bishops let him come, even though there were always troubles right to the end of his life. Now what he did when he went to a parish, besides visiting everybody and preaching um, every night in the church, teaching catechism every day to the children, this was really a workout. Near the beginning of the retreat, after about a week of the month long retreat, this is where he gets the idea of the 33 days, by the way he would have a procession around the, the parish and they, they would go into the church and on the, at the entrance of the door of the church there was a deacon who held the gospel book and St. Louis de Montfort told the people one by one to kiss the book of the gospel as a sign that you want to base your life now not on the maxims of the world but on the gospel of Christ. It was, a, it was an act of reverence for the gospel. Then the Montfort brought them into the church and they went to the baptismal font. This is one of the most important moments in the um, mission. It wasn't the culminating moment in the mission though, but it was an important moment. They went to the baptismal font and the Montfort asked them with Mary, holding her hand so to speak, he asked them six questions. And you know what those questions are. He said to them in a very loud and dramatic voice, do you renounce Satan? All right, I'm holding Mary's hand. She's the one who's going to crush the head of the devil. Do you renounce Satan in your life? Do you renounce all his, empty, his works? Sin. Do you renounce all his empty promises that this life is all that there is? So exploit it as much as you can. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth? Mary's father. Jesus' father, obviously. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary? suffered, died, and was buried, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will come back to judge the living and the dead. The people are answering, credo, I believe. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting? I believe. He doused them with holy water, and then the mission continued. That's the root of consecration to Mary. De Montfort defines consecration to Mary as the perfect renewal of the baptismal promises. 
That's what you do when you make the consecration. The mission continued, and another culminating mission, uh, moment of the mission was a general confession. So he helped all the people to come to confession. Many of those people had fallen away from the church, had never been catechized, had never been taught the, um, the moral teachings of the church. The mission provided all that, put, filled in all the empty spaces. He gave a thorough examination of conscience and the people had an opportunity to come to him and make a general confession. It took hours and hours for him to hear the confessions. And people wept because they told things that they were holding inside that they never thought they could say. It was a moment of great healing. Could you just go over general confession some questions? OK, a general confession uh, is it's going over one's whole life and confess and confessing everything that you might remember, that you couldn't remember. Why is that helpful? Sometimes I've had this experience as a confessor, preaching missions, actually. It's great to be a mission preacher. And I always tell the people when I preach a mission, look at this face. You're probably never going to see it again. And I'm never going to see you again. <laughs> so come to confession, and I don't know you. You don't know me. I'm going home tomorrow. I'm in Arizona. I'm going back to New Jersey or the Mount tomorrow. So tell me what you need to tell me. And if you want to tell me behind a screen and a curtain, that's all fine, too. But get, get the truth out. So there may be people, there are people out there who have something to say and they don't have the courage to say it and they're carrying it around with them and it doesn't smell good in the, after a while. Right? So it's an opportunity to get everything out into the open. Or then this, I think this is, happens today, especially with guys in the seminary who were not always close to Jesus, who may have had a conversion experience, a reversion experience, they realize now that they did things that were very wrong, and when they were doing it, they didn't realize it was very wrong. So the general confession gives an opportunity to bring everything out into the light so that you can say, there's nothing in, on my conscience, there's nothing on my conscience that I did that I never confessed. Everything that I've done which I believe to be sinful I know I honestly confessed it. Who makes a general confession? It sh you shouldn't do it every month. If, if, you don't, if you're doing it because you don't think God's forgiven you, then that's wrong. God forgives. You know the story of St. Margaret Mary? She went to, con she, you know, Margaret Mary is the saint who received the apparition of the miracle, of the um, Sacred Heart in Paris Le Monial in Paris. So someday when you make a retreat in ours, you should go down to Paré Le Monial. It's just two hours down the road. And that's what Jesus showed St. Margaret Mary his sacred heart. Why did Jesus show his heart to St. Margaret Mary? What was he combating? J Jansenism. Jansenism. The main, um, the main weapon against Jansenism was devotion to the heart of Jesus and the heart of Mary. Right? It's, it's kind of hard to get anything more... Um, symbolic of love and tenderness than the heart. Anyway, 
when Jesus came, he told Margaret Mary, who was just one of the sisters in the monastery, Jesus wants you to spread devotion to the Sacred Heart throughout the whole church. So she went to her superior and told her that, and the superior thought maybe she wasn't digesting her food properly or that there was something wrong with her, you know. So she said, if Jesus comes again, tell me. So Jesus came again and she went and superior said, okay, the next time he comes, tell, me, tell him to tell, me, to tell you the worst sin that I ever confessed. So she said to our Lord, my superior wants you to tell me, gives you permission to tell me. That superiors really think very highly of themselves. It gives you permission to tell me the, the greatest sin that I ever confessed. And you know what Jesus said? Now this, of course, take this in the correct way. Jesus said, I forget. God doesn't forget anything. But in other words, what was he saying? Whatever you confess is gone. I'll never hold that up. I'll never bring that up to you. You're totally forgiven of whatever you bring to me in this wonderful sacrament of, of reconciliation. So if a person is going, making general confessions because they don't believe that God's forgiven them, then you shouldn't make a general confession. It shouldn't be done often. It should be done maybe once, twice, three times, at most in a lifetime, I think. Sometimes people, when I was a young priest, people who were getting married would come and make a general confession very often. And their parents would, and grandparents would tell them to do that and explain to them what it was. They would come the night before the wedding and make a general confession. Religious, before they begin novitiate or before they make their first vows, sometimes make a general confession. And before ordination, and I think this happens to many priests, when you're looking into yourself and you're realizing what great gift God's going to give to you, there's a an attraction to make a general confession. Okay. So that's something to think about, but even in the preparation for the true devotion, one of the things that St. Louis de Montfort says you do on the day of or around the time of your consecration is to make a good, thorough confession. He doesn't say necessarily a general confession, but if you need a general confession, that's a good time to do it. And you know what? It's always the best thing to go to confession to your spiritual director, but if you don't want to, you, you have the right to go to anybody to confession. Right? Anybody who has faculties from the, a bishop can hear your confession. So you don't have to go even to your spiritual director to make the general confession, although it's helpful because one of the effects of a general confession to a spiritual director is it gives him a deeper insight into, into who you are and where you, what your history is, what you need. In any event, that's what de Montfort did during the mission. And many people needed to make a general confession because they never really used the sacrament of penance. I would say that was the penultimate moment of the mission. So the first moment of the mission, the first symbolic act was the kissing of the gospel and the renewal of the baptismal vows, then a general confession, and the ultimate act of the mission was a solemn reception of the Lord's body and blood and Holy Communion. The mission ended with a solemn mass and with the communion which was meant to give the grace necessary to live out the conversion that took place during the mission. And that's why de Montfort says on the day of consecration to Our Lady, you should, besides having prepared by going to confession, 
besides doing an act of charity for someone, giving an alms to the poor, whatever, you should also receive Holy Communion and in that Holy Communion receive what you need to live out this consecration to Our Lady. So let me, let me just end with that and we'll take our first break. And I want to say um, simply that the St. Louis de Montfort's understanding of consecration to Mary is through her, with her, in her, to renew the baptismal vows, renouncing Satan and sin, to be squeaky clean before God by making a good confession, and by having a new awareness of receiving the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. John Paul II, by the way, is all into his whole spiritual, all his spiritual teaching is saturated with the Montfort. And he makes the very beautiful point that even in the Eucharist, we have contact with Mary because we receive the body and blood that was, were her gifts to him. Not that she's present in the Eucharist, he's present in the Eucharist. But he says the sweet fragrance, the aroma of Mary is in the Eucharistic bread because it's her flesh and blood, her gift to him and to us in the Eucharist. Okay? So just keep that in mind, the perfect renewal of the baptismal promises through Mary, and we'll come back, and I want to talk about Mary's consecration to God as the model for our consecration to God.